you're an interesting man. Scott Lang. You're an Avenger. You have a daughter. But you've lost a lot of time. Like me. We can help each other with that. I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. What's that? Time. He can rewrite existence and shatter timelines. You cannot trust him. I don't care who this guy is. I just lost so much. He can give us a second chance. Let me make this easy for you. You will bring me what I need. Or everything you call a life will end. want her to watch this. We had a deal. You thought you could win. I don't have to win. We both just have to lose. I'm sorry, Cassie. Welcome back, everybody, to Joygasm, a video game and movie podcast. I'm Russ, and he is Steve. And we begin Marvel Phase 5 in episode 308 today, February 21st, 2023. We're going to be getting right into our topic of the day, which is Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania movie review. So there's no need to skip ahead whatsoever before we get into it. Make sure you shrink that notification. No, I'm going to say shrink that subscribe button and grow that notification bell. That way you will not miss a single solitary episode of Joygasm drops once a week each week. Steve, we saw this movie uh, separately hmm. uh, with our, I, I assume, our significant others. Hmm. And... Um, I think I know how you're going to feel, but I don't know if you know how I'm going to feel. Well, I guess uh, time will tell, right? Indeed. Indeed, Steve. <laughs> but your significant other, on the other hand, don't know how she's going to feel, Russ. No, no. No, no. No, Not sure if that really matters, though. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily on, at on least this, on this show. Yeah, not yeah, no, right. Right. Yeah, no. no. Um, so why don't, why don't you uh, kick us off, Steve? What, what did you think of Ant-Man 3? Well, let's see, Russ. Uh, you know, strangely, I was entertained. I didn't know really what to think. I you know, The Ant-Man series has been fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it hasn't been 
Thor or Iron Man, you know, but it's been like the comic relief, like, okay, nothing's gonna, you know, blow up the planets and whatever, you know, it's comedy, whatnot, you know, especially with like the thieves and like the first movie. And I think they were also in the second movie. Uh, and so anyway, it, this one's going to be a bit more lighthearted, but I hadn't seen those movies in quite some time. It's been a little bit. It's been a minute, minute and a half, maybe five. So mm-hmm. anyhow, this one comes out and it doesn't look like anything special, but I was trying to keep the, the jury out with this one. You know, I was going in there and see how it is. Of course. And, you know, I it, it wasn't really anything special in my opinion. I was still kind of entertained. Like I didn't get out of the theater and think, oh, I wish I had my time back. You know, uh-huh. so I was mildly entertained. But for the most part, it was just, it was, it wasn't really anything special. It was kind of a letdown mm-hmm. in a way. I didn't feel like the jokes really hit home. I wasn't laughing a whole lot. Right. I think I may have chuckled, smiled. <laughs> and I wasn't laughing. I don't think either of us was laughing. And then it seemed, the theater seemed to be the same way too. I heard a couple of, oh, no. <laughs> no, what was that? Okay, oh, oh, on my phone it was something, not the movie. Uh, <laughs> so, anyhow, it seemed to be the general consensus with the uh, the theater that everybody was feeling the same way. The theater was not packed either, and so I don't know what people were waiting for, but maybe that folks aren't too excited with this one. I don't know. I did notice the same thing when we went to go see the film. It was not a packed theater. Right. I would say it. I don't even know if it was halfway full. Yeah. Now, I know when we were booking tickets, there were certain times and certain days where it was sold out. Like, it, no. I, I don't want to paint no. a false picture here. But in terms of the, the time that I went in, I, I really did think that it was going to be close to being sold out, if not sold out, based on the other times that I initially looked at. Yeah. Um, I do still like... Uh, Scott's character. Mm-hmm. I think he, he is very like heartwarming. He's very charming. Uh, it's just that what they're doing with the movie just doesn't really seem to... I don't know what it is. If it doesn't have a rudder or it's just that maybe... A Paul rudder. <sighs> I, after I got out of the movie, I started thinking, Russ. It's always a dangerous thing. Mm. And I, I, I was thinking, you know, everything that's happened in phase four, which was pretty much terrible. Yeah. And this one was starting to, uh, this was starting off our phase five. And I figured it would be a, you know, starting off with a bang. And it didn't. Mm-hmm. And it kind of leads me to believe that we're, we're going to get more of phase four bleeding into phase five, which I don't want. And then that also led me to believe, well, maybe things should just... Have just ended with Endgame. Mm. You know, quit while they were ahead because they've just given us content, but it hasn't been substantial. And, you know, this is better than a lot of stuff that we've seen last year. It's just that it's not really there. It's, it just doesn't seem like it's a standout picture mm-hmm. at all. What about you? Ooh. I have a number of thoughts about this oh, movie. Is it so? It is indeed. You know, Ant-Man, in terms of Ant-Man 1 and 2, are rather unique in the sense of, of their placement within the MCU. And I think you were starting to talk a little bit about that. You mentioned mm-hmm. that a bit. And that is is that, like you know, Ant-Man is not 
Iron Man, Captain, Captain America, America, so forth. Yeah, you know, sure. like like he's he's not one of those uh, you know, main Avengers. He's his own insect. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, at the same time, it is a breath of fresh air. In fact, I remember when we were, were watching the previous Ant-Man films, I think that's what we actually said was that, you know, it is actually an original take on a superhero film. It sure. felt different. And that was a welcome addition to what we were used to simply because, you know, if we're watching like a Thor film or an Iron Man standalone film or a Captain America standalone film, all those, you know, th those are more or less kind of a cookie cutter. I mean, yeah, they have their own uniqueness within each film, but at the same time, it's like, they definitely are like the, 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 the A-class characters. If sure. You okay. Yeah. However, in this movie though, it, it seemed to lack a lot of what the first two movies had in terms of charm and also engaging storytelling. Like it just seemed like there wasn't, a lot of, of um, new morsels that we could just as moviegoers really sink our teeth into and, and just chew on for a bit like like the, the previous first two movies. You know, I always like seeing Paul Rudd. I think Paul Rudd mm. is um, a, a delight to see on screen. Doesn't matter what movie he's in. I mean, he, he's just great. And uh, but at the same time, when I was thinking about Paul Rudd in this film, it was almost like he was getting kind of shoved to the side a bit. And yep. I, I feel like the, the the name of the movie itself is kind of indicative of this because it's not just Ant-Man 3. It's Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. And it's literally like you have the Wasp who's also like trying to get the spotlight and then you have the quantum realm that's trying to also take on the spotlight. And so really, I don't know if they intended for this to happen or not, but it seems like Scott Lang, like just kind of was almost on the peripherals as opposed to like being front and center because it's his film. It's his movie. Right. He, he almost became a supporting character as opposed to what the, like someone like the wasp is supposed to be like kind of like well, what's been happening with these phase four shows. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I'd have to go back and just really do some reminiscing about the various movies and TV shows that were part of Phase 4. But I agree. I mean, I think Phase 4 has been easily the weakest phase of the MCU. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, um, in terms of what you were mentioning earlier, I do think that it didn't have to necessarily end with Endgame because there are so many other stories to tell. I think that it's more of a byproduct of the leadership over at, at Marvel and more specifically the MCU with like Kevin Feige, for example, where they want to actually kind of deviate from the tried and true and start to like inject all this other stuff that, that they would like to see. And I think that's what is starting to really hurt the MCU. And, and we saw that quite a bit in phase four because up until that point, we had seen that there was like this momentum, right? That there was, there was this, this um, very clear incentive to like, see what was going to happen next. How, how the, this universe that they had built over the last 10 plus years had really organically shifted. And, and the whole notion of the multiverse, for example, when we first heard about that, that's a fantastic new path to take because we had never seen that before. But it's weird because like, you know, you know this already phase four, it was kind of directionless, mm -hmm. you know, like, like you had these little 
bucketed standalone stories that they wanted to tell and certain aspects of that I thought were cool, but largely they were lacking and it started to really slow down the momentum that they had built over all this time. And so then phase five was supposed to be kicked off with Ant-Man three. And it, it, I agree with what you were saying. I don't think it necessarily was what we were hoping for in terms of how phase five got started. So, and there there are a number of things that I want to talk to you about and and get your feeling on, because even though I thought, I I thought the film was okay, you know, like I didn't regret going to go see it, but it's definitely, in my opinion, it's definitely the weakest of the three Ant-Man movies. So yeah. Are we getting a spoiler territory here? Because I just want to say something. Oh, well, I suppose we could get into spoilers. So you have been thusly warned. Please, Steve, tell us what is on your noggin. Well, the whole movie just started off wrong. The whole movie started off wrong. Not like the very first scene, but like, you know, he's walking through town and he's feeling good about himself. Like, you know, he's put out a book. He... You know, people notice him on the street. They're saying hello. They like who he is. He likes who he is. He just has this glow about him. I'm like, great. That's awesome. Yeah, it's Paul. Polly. A.K.A. Scott. Yeah, hey, Polly. Um, Scotty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyhow. So then there's his daughter. Yes. And his daughter kind of just is this dead weight in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And I found myself just rolling my eyes again and again and again whenever she would just deliver her lines. It's, a, it's like, uh, you know, you were mentioning this, you know, Scott Lang getting pushed aside mm-hmm. sort of thing. And yes, it was almost from every aspect of his family. And I thought, okay, maybe that's real life. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Yeah. But it's definitely not fun and entertaining to see and like give the man some respect. He's doing what he can. He's putting out a book, making some money for his family. He helped save the world uh, in all aspects. And so like give the guy some respect and he's getting it from every angle, mainly, I mean, not maybe not so much from his wife, but from his daughter, his wife's not backing him up though. Uh, I don't know if, 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 if even um, that is his wife yet or not. I think they're dating. But I don't think they actually got married. I think I thought they got married. Did I think, they? I thought they got married. Maybe they did. Go yeah. ahead. Anyhow, I, and so like that whole dinner scene where they all come together is like a party, mm-hmm. and they're just kind of harping on him, and he kind of gets this kind of smug look on his face and goes, "Well, what have you guys been doing then? Like, okay, so you're gonna put down saving the world? Okay, fine." But what have you guys been doing? They're like, go, oh, um, I don't know. Let's change the topic to something else, you know? And it, it had to get to like that awkward level. And I, as a viewer, thought, yeah, what's so special about y'all's lives? Like, okay, you're, you know, going to school. You got your company and your business. You guys are doing stuff, science, whatever. But like, don't, that's not dad's fault that you guys didn't help save the world. Like, okay, it happened how it happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on. And, and so then like we, we move on to, um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Janet, Janet. Thank you. And so she's been in the quantum realm for 30 years and traumatized by it. And okay. Some time has gone by. They're going to want to know what actually happened. And no one's asked any questions at all. Like they they said like, Oh mom, you never want to talk about it. At some point though, you're going to have to say, 
look, there's this really bad guy down there and I, I didn't think it was going to be a thing, but because of all this other stuff that's been happening in the multiverse and villains here and powers and whatever, whatnot, y'all not, y'all got to know. Mm-hmm. And no one says a thing. And so they go, you know what? Let's tamper with it and see what happens. Let's yeah. risk all of our lives. We're not going to talk to dad. We're not going to talk to Janet. We're not going to talk to anybody. And we're just going to risk the whole thing. I just thought, it's kind of a how slap together kind of story is this, you know? <laughs> I, to, to me, to me, I thought of, um, <laughs> this is going to be like a kind of a crazy comparison, but it's almost like, hey, let's go to grandpa and ask him how Vietnam was. And the Vietnam War is like still happening. Let's just say like, grandpa, man, I know you can't talk about Vietnam. You know, it really, I, I really want to know. I, you know, I'm, can you, can you tell me anything about it? And then he goes, maybe someday. And you go, you know what? I'm just going to go there. And you find a way to transport yourself right in the middle of combat. You know, mm-hmm. and you're like, I could die now, but I'm learning. Yeah. You know, it's like the same kind of thing. I, I just, to me. It, it, it's a little bit just too far-fetched. Like the story was just kind of slapped together too quick and they just said, this is how things are going to go and don't ask questions. It, it is what it is. Yeah, I think it's important to, to analyze these different aspects of the film into bite-sized chunks. And I'm glad that you brought up the daughter because that to me was uh, um, one of the weakest parts of the entire film. Right. I did not buy into the relationship that Cassie had with Scott. And for a lot of reasons that you listed, but one of the things that, that really caught my attention was the actor that plays Cassie is different. They hired someone mm. else than who played Cassie in Avengers Endgame. And I remember I was in the theater. I'm thinking like, man, like this person just doesn't look like the person who we saw in Endgame. Right. And, um, and sure enough, I, I I came home and I and I went to that part where Scott like comes back from the quantum realm and the snap has already happened and and you know he's trying to find out like where his family is, where his daughter is located, that sort of thing. And I'll I'll circle back to that in just a sec. But what's interesting to me is that the the father daughter dynamic is actually one of the unique aspects of the Ant Man movies. You know, when we first see Scott in the first Ant Man movie, his daughter's really small and and uh, she looks like she's maybe between six to eight years old. And I just love the relationship that they had and they carried that on into Ant Man and the Wasp. You know, where where they're still playing together that they have established not only the relationship between the father and the daughter, but also they've established the the personality of his daughter. And she's cute as a button. Like mm-hmm. she's, she's smart. She's affectionate. Like she loves her daddy. Like there, there's all this stuff that's going on. And then she loses her father during Avengers infinity war and Avengers Endgame, And, several years pass. I can't remember if it was like three years or five years, but I mean, there, there, there's a, I think it was five years, like, like a chunk of time passes while Scott is, is trapped in the quantum realm. He comes back and then he sees his daughter way older than, than when he first uh, left her. And that was a really, I mean, that, that, that was a poignant moment. And so when I was watching that scene again, I encourage everybody to go back and see that because there is that moment where Scott walks up on the front porch and his daughter answers the door and opens the, the screen door open. And like, 
they have this moment where like, I mean, he is shocked to see how much older his daughter has gotten since the last time he was there. Because again, time is this, this relative thing when you're in the quantum realm, like you could be in the quantum realm for like maybe an hour, but then in the real world, like time shifts a whole lot faster. Right. So you see this moment where like they reunite and the emotionality on the actor's face who's playing Cassie and older Cassie at that point is palpable. I mean, it, it's very authentic. It's very sincere. And I, as a moviegoer, buy into that. I remember seeing it and I'm just like, wow, like that's really pulling at my heartstrings because of the performance that is um, being given by whoever the actor is who played Cassie. And by the way, her name is uh, Emma Furman, who, who played the, uh, the, the older Cassie. So I was expecting to see her reprise her role in the third film. And instead, we get someone else entirely, which, by the way, the new actor is actually younger than the actor who was playing Cassie in Avengers Endgame, which is just, from a continuity standpoint, it's like, wait, why is she all of a sudden, like, noticeably a few years younger than than how she was established in, in Endgame? And that, that's just bizarre. So the reason I'm, I'm, I'm setting all this up is that when we see this new actor take on the the role of Cassie, gone is is what has been previously established, and now we're seeing Cassie as this very like insolent, petulant, disrespectful kid who I don't know, like like it doesn't. I don't buy into it because of what Scott has gone through in the past, where like like you were saying, you know, like. Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame happened. Everybody saw the snaps after effect of, of, of you know, sure, fifty percent of people um, of, of humanity turning into dust. And she went without seeing her dad for several years. I mean, to have that type of a relationship and then realize that that you have the, this reuniting of your father again. Not only that, but then you realize that he was instrumental in also saving not only Earth but also the universe. There's, there's just a certain level of respect that will be given from that point on. And, you know, to take kind of like what you were saying about the Vietnam War, you know, if you have, say, say a family member who went to, um, say, Vietnam or World War II or one of the more uh, current or not current, but like, you know, more recent sure. wars. Yeah. You know, they're they're what's known as like gold star families because they went out and they they really gave their ultimate they gave the ultimate sacrifice, right? So when they return, it's like you you handle that family member differently than you did before they went and did something that big. And there's a certain zone that you simply don't go into as a result because that person has done more than likely the the other members of the family will ever do. Not, and it's not like a pissing contest, but it's more about just once again, like like that was like a huge thing that that he partook in. And uh, and so I just didn't buy it. You, you know, like it ended up trivializing that with, which Scott had done in the previous films. And I just didn't believe that Scott's daughter would behave in that way, especially like later in the movie when she is rescuing that uh, that leader of, you know, the rebels, I guess you could say. And she sets her free and she goes, oh, man, you are so cool. Like this person, like, OK, she yeah, she could fight a bit. 
Uh, and she was a leader, yeah, of course. And so she had leadership qualities. But like, you're going to say that person's cool and not your dad? Well, again, I mean, I think there, there was several reoccurring issues with that character in particular where, um, like you were talking about the, the, the car ride and how she had gotten arrested. Like there is, there is a, a, a very significant thing about that because Scott prior to becoming an Avenger and becoming Ant-Man, he was a thief, he was a thief. you know, he had a record, he had a rep and, and he actually was in jail. In fact, they kind of poked fun at it a little bit in the film, but again, realistically speaking, children are, are greatly affected when they have a parent who goes to jail. Because once again, that means that they're away from the family. They're away from the kids and the kids mm. really have to take on that, that emotional mental baggage. Mm. And so for her to like, just be like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm this social justice warrior and I'm going out and helping, you know, doing whatever in the San Francisco. And I'm just like, that she would, the character would never behave that way toward her father or say that. In fact, right. she would do everything that she could to avoid re replicating the mistakes that he made. Because again, too, he identified the mistakes that he made and the, and the flaws as a character that he had in the previous films. And he was making a point to break himself of that for the sake of his daughter. Right. So again, like there's, there are all these different, different components that are going on. And it's like, no, that like, to me, it sounds like the script writers just wanted it to try and, and inject some kind of trivial conflict between the father and the daughter. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. It doesn't yeah. work. And doesn't, not only yeah. that, but then the daughter comes across the entire movie as being obnoxious. Right. And I, I no longer am invested in that character. Like, I, I mean, if, if Kang were to have taken her out, I would have been like, well, yeah, that sucks. But, know. oh, well, like I, <laughs> next movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think too, like when, as you're going into the different parts of the film, for instance, like, like they go down, I, I won't go too far into this because I'll otherwise I'll be ping ponging all over the movie, but like. You know, when they go into, for, well, let me, actually, I'll back up a little bit. Okay, where are you going, Russell? So we find out that she has made, like, some sort of peripheral device that basically acts as a means to be able to, like, send a signal down to the quantum realm. She has, like, to our knowledge, like, no science background whatsoever. whatsoever. Yeah. Now, granted, she does have a grandfather mm -hmm. who's a scientist and he's very smart and everything else. And she's surrounded by, by, you know, uh, other folks too, who, who also have, um, some kind of science background, that sort of thing. So, okay. I can kind of see that, but credit was basically said that, that she made it. It wasn't like, Oh, Hey, grandfather, granddaughter project. Look yeah. what we did. It was like, no, she made the whole thing. Right. And so like, that's been something that has, been trending lately in Marvel movies, which is that we see like some female character that somehow, some way is able to like concoct something that is insane in their basement or garage or apartment. Like we saw the same thing with, um, Ironheart, for example, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, I I'm going to I'm going to put together uh, an Iron Man suit, and I just did, you know, it's no big deal. I, mean, I just put it together in my spare time. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> no, because then you're trivializing that which Tony Stark like painstakingly went through, and arguably as one of the like most intelligent characters in the world, as as far as the Marvel universe is concerned, it's like you don't like like. 
by doing that, you're you're yanking the audience out of being immersed and and having the suspension of disbelief because now it's just a, a participation trophy where right. it's like, oh well, we have you know, this, this character and we want to have it be a female that like goes off and, and does all these same exact things. And Oh, by the way, it is kind of derivative big based off of, I mean, again, we have an iron man. Oh, now we have an iron heart and there's you know a daughter who like happens to make something like that in her spare time and, and, you know, set it off. And I, again, it's just, and plus she's been using like another Ant-Man kind of suit. And so she's figuring that out. She's had no training. What you're like, I could do it too, Depps. Yeah. You know, I'm like, you are not an Avenger. She like, has no you know, training. Yeah. No training whatsoever. And like all of a sudden you're going to be just as good as, so it's going to be like Ant-Man, the wasp and daughter. Yeah. On the, <laughs> you know, yeah. This again, be? like Marvel is guilty of glossing over too many things right. to the point where I can't take it seriously. And that's a problem because I want to be able to take it seriously. Right. I want to be able to plunge myself and be um, completely immersed in, in this type of world. But there, in this instance, there are too many factors involved where I'm like, no, that would not happen. No, I'm not buying that. Like, and again, one other example would be like, oh, I'll, I'll list two more. One is, is that you, when they get sucked into the quantum realm, to our knowledge, like that's the first time she's ever been in the quantum right. realm. So like, this is a, comp I mean, to have been shrunk <laughs> down to less than a subatomic level and to be in this alien environment, you're not going to be just, you know, laissez-faire about it you're going to be freaking out because you've never been in this world before. And you don't know what's, you don't even know like how you're going to get out. There's all there. are Once again, there are all these factors involved that the actor should then use, like, like be able to, to leverage that to be able to provide a, a performance that we can all believe in. But right. you know, they get down there and then she's just like, Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Oh, you got some floaty <laughs> things in the air and we'll find a way home thing. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and really, you know, not to, to uh, deviate too much, but just really briefly, if I compare the performance of the character who or the, the actor who played the character Cassie to that of Michelle Pfeiffer, right? You know, Michelle Pfeiffer was one of the highlights of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, because of her performance. She is such a phenomenal actor that, like, you know. Every time we saw her, whether it was before they were in the quantum realm or while they were in the quantum realm, or even when they had finally gotten out, she just, she was able to exude this sense of terror. Like, like she was very, she was scared and, and she knew what was going on. You could tell she had a lot of PTSD and like, but, but that was one of the, the highlights for me where it's like, I started to feel that I'm like, yeah, that's how I would feel if I was in a, a situation like this. The final example I was going to give you regarding Cassie is when you have all these different alien species that like basically grab Scott and Cassie and bring them to their base. And then like, as Scott is being brought down to his knees, these there you have a couple of aliens that are coming over with some kind of red goo and she all of a sudden like has like her chins like all messy and she's like oh dad drink the red goo just drink it and i'm like again you <laughs> you're in the quantum realm you are surrounded by completely alien 
humanoid or, or other creatures and stuff from other worlds, other universes. And oh, by the way, they want to violate your body by pouring down some kind of alien goo that you have no idea what's going to happen, including her. Including the aliens, too, because they're surprised. Oh, by the way, the goo from my body works. We just figured this out. Thank goodness I didn't kill them and the movie would have been over at that point. <laughs> But again, my focus on what I'm talking about right now is just the fact that she was so just like, yeah, just, just go ahead and drink it. Dad, just drink it. That's what you got to do. It's like they would not behave that way. Like even if the daughter drank it first, like was forced to drink it and then she could suddenly understand you have an alien fluid in your body. What kind of side effects will there be? What kind of, you know, health issues might you have? Even if you don't have any of those types of issues, the thought's going to come through your mind. <laughs> Cranberry juice. <laughs> Where'd they get that? Yeah. Quantum realm's not so bad. <laughs> well, and see, that's another aspect, too, that I wanted to talk about, which is the quantum realm itself. Oh, okay. Because when we went to the last couple of times that we were in the quantum realm, it was a very dangerous place. They had to wear helmets. If you recall in the first Ant-Man movie, it was either the first one, or the, actually no, it was the second one. Um, the second one they, it was when they actually rescued Janet, right? Well, Dr. Was it Frank or Hank or something like that? Hank. Hank. Yeah. Hank Pym? Yeah, thank you. He ends up having to take some kind of ship, some like, you know, airtight ship, down to like see where where she is and try and rescue her which means that the air or oxygen levels or whatever it is that are at this level are probably not safe to breathe and but then in this film they all get sucked in none of them are wearing their helmets and they're just fine so it's like okay well, well which is it because i was under the impression that one of the uh areas of threat within being in this, this quantum realm is the fact that you can't breathe like that. <laughs> again, having that as an attribute then causes tension, right? Because if they get into a fight, for example, and their helmet gets knocked off, what's going to happen? You know? So, so there are things like that where I'm just like, okay. And then like certain scenes where, where we see the quantum realm, like when, for instance, we see how Janet, uh, was trying to survive and how she first meets Kang. Like that was a much more dreadful, threatening environment, right? Like you don't know who's going to come or what's going to come at you, that sort of thing. And I like that. I like that scene. But then when the family gets there, they're walking around and it's just like, Oh, this is so colorful. And there's like little like jellyfish things flying in the air. And again, it lost most of like, the fact that this is, this is not earth. This is, this is not like, you know, average day uh, in San Francisco or whatever. Like you're in what supposedly is, is something where you're very much out of your element. But what did you, do you feel the same way? Yeah. And I also thought like where you're talking, there is extra like humanoid characters. Yeah. In the quantum realm. They're like, Oh, you're human. They're like, yeah. <laughs> and so are you like, you are, you look exactly like I do. Same features. Uh, and then it was like, some, for some reason, such a, a big surprise. Oh, man, we have humans down here. Like Bill Murray was a human. Like yeah. The leader of the... Or humanoid. Or humanoid. Well, I mean... He's not He's not supposed to be an earthling. Like he, Right, but he, I mean... He's a humanoid. He's a human. 
Yeah, he was. It wasn't like Bill Murray the alien. You know, it was Bill Murray who walked out and looked like a man, and we couldn't tell any difference. But I'm just saying, like he he wasn't. They made a point to say he was not from Earth, right? Like he he was clearly from a different place. It's just he looks human, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm, that's that's what I'm saying is, if, if they wanted to make him look different, like they did for plenty of other characters, pretty much everybody else, almost down there, they could have, but they just decided, okay, yeah, he's an alien, but he's well, he's human. Yeah. I don't, say, I don't know. I couldn't really buy it. I'll actually talk about Bill in just a sec, but I, I forgot to mention that Emma Furman, who played Cassie uh, in uh, Avengers Endgame, I don't know. I'll have to double check if this is correct or not, but I was reading online about how she actually found out that she was not going to continue being Cassie during like the Disney investors day meeting or something like that. Like they, they came out and made the announcement of like who was going to be Cassie. And she was just like, uh, I thought I was going to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I don't know if that's a hundred percent correct or not, but I did see something that, uh, uh, was being talked about with, with regards to that. So it's, if that's the case, I mean, it's kind of like, man, that's, that's pretty cutthroat. You know, Russ, I'm going to, Bring up something completely different. Oh, are you now? The uh, Cassie actress. You know who she might be a good replacement for? Who? The, uh, what is her name? Bella Ramsey from The Last of Us. Is that her name? For Ellie? Oh, uh uh-huh. I think she would make a good Ellie. She would. I agree. I think that, that, yeah, she she definitely, I think, looks more like the, the, the gaming counterpart. Huh, just thought of that. Yeah. Anyway. Indeed. Back to Ant-Man. Back to Bill Murray. So Bill Murray was one of the actors that I was really looking forward to when I saw the trailer. I'm like, oh, sweet. Bill Murray's going to be in Ant-Man 3. But he was only in it for like five minutes. Yeah. And then not only that, but like his role really wasn't worthy of Bill Murray. If yeah. that makes any sense. It's like he was there and like we find out that Janet like hooked up with him, which is kind of <laughs> weird because he's not from Earth and she's still married. But like and then you kind of find out that that he has a bone to pick with her and and you know there, there was some some uh bad uh bad juju between uh, the two of them that sort of thing. And then and then that was kind of the end of it. But I was just like, man, like what a waste. You could have done a whole lot more with Bill Murray. It's Bill Murray. Yeah, it's Bill, Bill Murray. Freaking Murray. We're big Bill Murray fans here. He just basically was on. He was taking a tour at Disney that day. They were like, oh, hey, Bill, you want to do a quick cameo? He's like, oh, what do I got to do? Put on this blue jacket? Put on, you, know, you saw <laughs> someone else say that. <laughs> we're we're not about the to same thing. plagiarize on I this show. I was thinking the same thing. Um... But anyway, I, I definitely wish that, that there was more significance to his character, to his role. And, uh, and instead, we, we just, it was like he was there and then he wasn't. And it was like, oh, well, I guess that's the end of Bill Murray. And so, <sighs> definitely was not Zombieland, you know, in that regard where like no. Bill Murray had a more memorable presence, mm. if you will. But I mean, I, again, the fact that he was in there, I did enjoy seeing his face. I'm like, ah, there's Bill, there's yeah. Mr. Murray. Now, okay, so I realize that we've been harping on different aspects of the film that we didn't care for. Sure, Russ. One of the positive things about the film is Jonathan Majors, who plays Kang the Conqueror. I really did like his performance, 
And we, we were already introduced to him during the Loki season. Mm-hmm. So at the very end of Loki, we get introduced to this character Kang. And we both really liked his performance there too, because every iteration of Kang has a slightly different kind of personality. And also based off of what Kang knows and what he's seen and what he's dealt with everything else, it does mess with him mentally as well. So it, he's a complex character, which I, I dig it. I think it's cool. It's a nice new villain after Thanos, who was like this mad Titan, who was like the kind of a war general type. And I really liked how he, I don't know, like just the, the different types of scenes, like when, when he was interrogating, for instance, Scott and Cassie and doing the little things where like, he, he wasn't just in their face yelling at them or whatever, but like there were certain truths. It was, it's interesting because his character is, he tells the, the truth more often than we think but he also lies at certain times too. I mean, he just can't be trusted at all because you never know where he's coming from or whatever. And again, that, you know, to, to go back to the, the whole issue of that we have with Cassie, that interrogation scene was also terrifying for anyone who would be in that situation because you don't know who this creature or character is, but with the flick of a finger, they have telekinesis uh, abilities where they can suddenly float your body in midair and start to cause you pain and that sort of thing. And so having Cassie all of a sudden go up and he starts to, to inflict pain on her body and, and turn her sideways. And then, you know, while he's doing that with her, then he starts to torture Scott a little bit, that sort of thing. Again, that would have such a psychological impact on the daughter. I mean, it, it would have a psychological impact even on Scott as a full grown man. But, the, but he's been through more of these types of situations in the past with the Avengers and so forth versus his daughter, who's never gone through any of this before in her life. So again, it makes me think about other girl characters in previous films. Like, for instance, when you watch Aliens, right? And we, you, know, you have the, the space marines that are coming down, that sort of thing. And Sigourney Weaver's Ripley character, you know, they discover this girl who's like one of the lone survivors within that, like, I I can't remember if it was like a mining colony or whatever, whatever kind of like colony that they had on, on this alien planet. And she was living through like the ventilation shafts and basically had made her own little home that was safe from the aliens, that sort of thing. But she was catatonic when they came across her for the, and for the longest time, it's like, she was scared to like, she didn't trust any of, of uh, the space Marines or Ripley. They had to start to create a sense of trust and a bond. And like, even then, like she wasn't speaking hardly at all. And then like, whenever she saw a face hugger or she saw an alien, I mean, she was freaking out, screaming everything else. But I bought into that. The whole audience who um, watched Aliens bought into that because that's part of how we react when we saw these disgusting monsters that were trying to kill humans, right? Same thing with Poltergeist. If you watch Poltergeist, there's a there's a little girl in that one too. And again, she didn't just like go, ah, oh, whatever, you know, stuff's floating in the air. Caster. Yeah, like I'm going into some kind of hellish dimension. I'm good, I'm good. You know, just, just drink it. Just drink the goo. You know, you're just like, no, like that, that didn't happen. So as a result, whatever kind of situation that was going on in those films, we as the audience bought into that more because the girls were freaking out and rightfully so. It's like, these are supernatural situations. So I just feel like like there's there's kind of a, a calloused 
unrealistic approach to to those types of uh, characters that we've been witnessing. Steve. Well, back to Kang. Yes. Uh, so I hear what you're saying about Kang, but my thing is also too that uh, you know we went from Thanos, who was this huge threat to Kang and Kang the Conqueror that we have was supposed to be the worst of all the Kangs. And that's why they were like, they banished him. Or at least that's what I gathered from the, yeah. from the movie. Uh, Cause they're, that's the three guys got together and they were like, Oh, you know, we had to, he was exiled and yeah. he was the worst of us and whatever, whatnot. And so then you have just Ant-Man uh, and the wasp and ragtag people. And then a colony of, evolved ants just take him out mm-hmm. and then the movie and then we have like thousands of other kangs but to me that just didn't have the right weight to it like thanos is one being with yeah. one personality and one drive and one purpose and not okay so are we gonna have like a thousand other movies where like kang's gonna be it from now on and we're gonna have to get to know a new kang every movie like to me that doesn't have the uniqueness of Thanos. Yeah. And to me, it doesn't feel, again, it doesn't feel special at all. It doesn't feel like we're, we're heading towards anything because, okay, there's thousands of different directions we could go here. Um, where do we go if there's thousands of different ways? And if we go this way, would, why not that way? Wouldn't that way be better? Or wouldn't that Kang be, is Kang one person or is like that we're going to deal with? Or is he thousands to me just doesn't it loses it it loses that identification i guess i do think that the fact that there are so many iterations of kang that is fascinating to me personally because again like if you look at say just a singular villain physically speaking okay like like you know they'll have like thanos for instance was definitely a a threat and an imposable villain. But I find the fact that there are so many Kangs with different backgrounds, different motivations, that sort of thing that exists. And that we saw, I don't know if you saw the, the kind of the credits Easter egg. Sure. Russ, but we saw like, I've been to a few Marvel movies. (laughs) Hey, I don't know if you just up and left or what. I'm out of here. Yeah. But we see essentially like a Colosseum filled with all these different types of Kangs and more are being warped in all the time. You and I don't read those Marvel comics. We never have. So therefore we're newbies when it comes to who Kang is, what he's capable of, what his purpose is, what his role is, what he's done within the Marvel universe. So like for me, like I'm not too quick to just like, peace out and be like, Oh, I'm just not into it. Whatever. Like I'm very much, I'm curious to see how this all plays out because it definitely strikes me as again, as it applies to the multiverse, I I'm, I'm conflicted because on the one hand, I, I love the idea of the multiverse. I love the idea of how there are all these parallel realities and they're all in these like, you know, different strings and whatnot. And as a result, I, my understanding is, is maybe like all these Kangs are from these different realities who now have come together to conquer and that sort of thing and decide like which timelines continue, which ones actually there's only one that I think they want to go forward and they're trying to like basically fight against time. And I mean, there's, there are a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to that. My concern, though, 
is Marvel glossing over all of these different things that provide opportunity to really have like, it's what, it's what I mentioned. Um, I think in the previous podcast episode of Joygasm, where I was saying, I love the idea of time travel. I love the idea of multiverse parallel realities, that sort of thing, because of what can be explored from a creative standpoint, not just visually like, Oh, look at all these cool colors, but like more about some of the butterfly effect of like what happens when you meddle in all of these different realities. And we see like so far we've seen like very like surface level stuff. Like in, in the Loki TV show, for instance, we saw how like, Oh, okay. Some of these timelines can come to an abrupt end. And then like everybody who's in that timeline ceases to exist. They all perish or, or whatever. So it's like, wow. Okay. That's, that's big. I mean, that, that really, it almost kind of dwarfs um, Avengers, Infinity War and Endgame because now it's not just about one reality, it's all these different kinds of parallel realities. But again, we just don't know if Marvel's going to take the time to really dive into that from a philosophical level or, or just really yeah. like... And again, mm -hmm. if they do that, then there, there will be more audience engagement because then it's like, now you understand the stakes. Yeah, I see where you're going there, but from what they've been giving us with content, nothing has dived deeply into anything. <laughs> so I'm not going to bet that's going to happen. Mm. Russ. Well, that's a, that's a very pessimistic view there, Steve. Realistic point of view, Russ. Realist. Pessimistic Perkins over here. Mm. Mm. Realism. <laughs> sometimes it tastes good. Sometimes it tastes bad. Well, and I think that's going to really dictate too how phase five and the subsequent phases afterward will play out. Because if they continue just to kind of gloss over these things, it's going to continue to trivialize what we are anticipating. And as a result, it's again, part of what Marvel has to really come to terms with is for instance, in these films, the likelihood of a hero dying is very, very low. Like really like the only times that I think we have seen um, like the, like the notable heroes actually die came in like in the Avengers films when they came together, you know, like you even had like um, in the, what was the second Avengers film called? Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Thank you. You're welcome. We did have, Someone who wasn't even an Avenger, but like, you know, it was the Scarlet Witch's brother. He passed away by saving um, some of the, the, the townsfolk, right? And, but other than that, it's like most of what we had seen, the sacrifices took place more within Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame. And so I think that that is a bit of a problem for Marvel because also like when you go into a, a film, you're just going to expect that everybody's going to make it out just fine. Well, that that removes the sense of dread, the stakes, like, you know, are they going to survive? Are they not going to, well, what's going to happen? That sort of thing. And, and even in, in Quantumania, it was like it came full circle where it was like, you know, they were able to get back out and we see Scott like just kind of skipping down the sidewalk again and, and we we're listening to his uh, interior monologue. Inner monologue. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, he's just, you know, saying, well, did we get rid of Kang? Did we, do we not get rid of, you know, like, like posing that question. But I just felt like it was just too, 
it was it was too conveniently tidied up. You know, like like Back to the Future, for example, the stakes were super high. Like you didn't know what was going to happen. The tension level was up, and Marty McFly was able to get Back to the Future in the first film. But then when they continued in the sequel, the sequel was messed up based right. off of certain things. Like, like that is a prime example of how they explore themes of selfishness and greed, for example. What happens when you have a time machine and you want to make some money on the side? You know? Yeah, what side could, hustle. What could possibly mm. go wrong? And then we actually go through and see different scenarios of what could actually happen during an alternate 1985. And oh, by the way, at the end of Back to the Future 2, Marty is stuck in the 50s without a DeLorean. Like, so those are consequences. Like, and I think that's the thing. It's like, where are the consequences, the serious consequences when it comes to Marvel films? Yep, Russ, there are none. There, I, I wouldn't say there are there none. There are none. <laughs> the, there, the consequences of something happening to one of the characters means that Disney can't keep that hero on the payroll anymore. <laughs> and so we're, they're going to lose interest. Then when people come to Disneyland, they're going to be like, I don't want to see Ant Man. He's dead. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I took this as a summer job and I liked it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, they're not going to want that. I do think I think that the, the consequences within the Marvel movies are very few and far between, and mm. I think that they they need to take more risk in terms of raising the stakes and yes, having things that do impact the other heroes and characters for many phases to come. Like you can't just constantly have like, and they narrowly survive again, and you're just like, okay, well, okay. I kind of always wanted Ant-Man to be like another, like the first one, for example. You, He's not fighting anybody who's going to change the world. You know, he fought like this, well, Darren, basically. MODOK. Yeah. Pre-MODOK. <laughs> that, yeah. And that's all he fought, you know. So the guy wasn't going to take over the world. He wasn't going to take over the universe. He wasn't going to take over the multiverse. It was just like, you know, here's a cute story to introduce this character. And it was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now... it. And that's really, really why I, that's what I wanted for this movie. Not something like Ant-Man versus Kang. I don't know. It, well, and see, MODOK is actually a pretty frightening character in, in the, the comic comics, books. Right. Like he's no one to be trifled with. But then once again, they trivialize the character and they, he turned into like this ongoing joke. Right. I'm just like, why would you do that? And I understand, like, like you know, when you look at how he looks in the comic books, it's going to be a bit challenging creatively. Okay, how do we create this for a film that doesn't look completely silly and goofy? Sure. But again, it can be done. Like, yeah, there, there are course. all kinds of ways to do it where, it, you know, it goes from being goofy to actually being creepy, where it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like this huge, like, alien head and it has, sure. like, these, like, appendages that don't match the size. And I mean, it can be really creepy and, and if you want it to be. But again, it was just like they went for the, the I don't know, the wacky joke. It's almost like they're not taking the source material seriously enough, number one. And number two, you know, they don't really know who they're really trying to market to anymore because they're, they're trying, they want all the adults who read these comic books as a kid to come see these films. But we're all growing up and we have crazy busy lives now. We're not like, you know, getting out of school and running to the comic book shop. Like we got jobs to go to and to pay for food on the table and, you know, shelter overhead and, cl- and for little kids, our kids, right? Mm-hmm. Well, your kid, I don't have a kid. Anyhow, 
But then they're trying to market to the new generations, right? And so they're they're in like this weird limbo of like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make it silly for the little kids, so it's not so intense for them, so they'll come to it. But I mean, we're gonna we're kind of we'll provide just enough like swear words in there for it, so like the adults can still be attracted to it too. But then the adults, so far as everything I've ever seen, they don't like this movie. Ain't getting very good reviews, yeah, by and large. So I really don't know who they, they think their audience is anymore. Well, and I also think, too, that they have transitioned from telling stories that have already gone through the ringer within the comic books themselves and are cherished among all the fans, you know, who, who, that have, they, they've stood the test of time throughout all these decades, and people still, when they, when they think of certain storylines that have been done in the comics, people are just like, oh, man, that was such a great story. They're still pursuing some of that to a certain extent, but I feel as though they're transitioning and pivoting to like kind of wanting to inject things that they want to talk about as opposed to what the audience wants to talk about. A really brief example of this is I was struck by how you had certain lines in the movie that like really were jarring to me. Like, like at one point you see, uh, you said it was Dr. Hank, right? Mm-hmm. Not Frank, but for Hank. Hank. So there's a moment where, where Dr. Hank, he actually talks well, about Dr. Pym, but Hank Pym. Yeah. yeah. There's a moment where he talks, he actually says the word socialism and he's talking in there about it. And I, and I was just kind of like, what? Like what? That, why did it was just awkward that like that, socialism is just a very charged word, but I mean these ants I'm like, okay, a bug hive mind. You're going to compare it. Like we're supposed to think about this now. Well, it it just, it it became more political as a, as a result. We're like, you know, you could tell the writers just wanted to shoehorn that in any way they could. And even like the way that Michael Douglas delivered that line, you could tell you're just like, yeah, you you shouldn't have done that. that. That's, that's, that's too forced. And then there's another moment where it's like later on in the film where you have all the, the different band of, of alien species and whatnot who are attacking Kang's uh, fortress. And one of them, you hear scream, burn it down. I mean, it is like, I don't know if you caught that or not, but it was like front and center for me. And it's like, okay, we as as the United States have recently gone through some pretty dire circumstances in terms of the social fabric of this country and more specifically Antifa <laughs> where like there was lots of cities that got burned and looted and people got hurt and everything. I mean, it, this is, this is a very sensitive issue among the folks and for them to like, once again, it's like that shoehorn referencing of, of like, things that are happening in the real world. And it's like, that's inappropriate. Like that's not, that doesn't carry forward the story of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania at all. In fact, it yanks viewers out of the moment even more so because now you're starting to put in propaganda. Right. So mm. got to stay away from that because people come to see your movies for entertainment. They come to watch your films to get away Unplugged. from you know, reality and life. That's right. As it, as it stands. So did you have any other, uh, well, I, I, you know what? Let me hear your concluding thoughts and rating, Steve. Russ, the concluding thought I have is 
that I'm nervous for Guardians of the Galaxy now. <laughs> That's my one concluding thought. Ant-Man, I was never really a big fan of. I just really enjoyed the movie because the, the the series because it was giving me humor that I, I liked. It wasn't such like superhero overlord or overload save the world kind of deal. And uh, so what I really liked about the character, I didn't get that much in here. And what I didn't like about phase four, I got more so of that here as well. So it's just not a movie that wasn't terrible. Like I said, it just, you're, I wouldn't advise to go rush out and see this movie and on the big screen. I mean, yeah. that, to me, that didn't really make do any, any good for it. I would wait till it gets on Disney plus and give it a watch for sure. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it's not the worst Marvel movie. Um, it's definitely not that latest Dr. Strange movie. That was really freaking bad. But <laughs> um, anyway, I like I said before, somehow I was kind of strangely amused by it, uh, but I didn't feel like it was a waste of time. So I don't know. I, um, been going back and forth for the last few days and what kind of rating I would Ooh. give it, Russ. I think I'm going to give it a two. Two stars. Yeah. From the Steve Rooney. Yeah. What's interesting about this film is the notion of this quantum realm and the way it's being depicted and handled by Marvel. And I'm, the big thing for me is how the quantum realm can play into the ever-expanding Marvel Cinematic Universe because it does, in fact, really seem to have a very viable use uh, during different times, right? In fact, that it was very instrumental in uh, even the Avengers um, Infinity War and Endgame, right? Like, like that was a, a very big moment. So it's interesting to me to see like, okay, what, what kind of plans does Marvel have for this as an agent, right? Like as, as an environment, as this, this thing that can actually have a certain level of influence, because as we saw in this movie, this iteration of Kang was banished to the, the quantum realm and he couldn't get back out. So, I mean, again, that is using the quantum realm as a tool, which I liked. I like that, that kind of idea of like, okay, well, how, how does this work? It, you know, it, it, I don't want it to be some random place. I want there to be some kind of purpose. Having said that, I do think that you need to have believability when it comes to your characters and especially when it comes to a family there needs to be certain dynamics involved that sell it to me as a moviegoer that this is indeed a family who really do care. And I think, um, like, for instance, one of the, the scenes we see Scott grow to be like a giant, right? And he's yelling as, you know, he, he's really mad and he's, you know, bellowing, where's my daughter kind of thing, right? And I, as a father, like, I can identify with that. But then it gets kicked down several notches because I'm reminded of the fact that I don't like his daughter. Like, like the, the, the persona <laughs> of the daughter that we see in this film is one, once again, is disrespectful, is insolent, is this petulant girl that like, 
it, 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 the character is depicted in a way that doesn't make sense. I do not buy that version of Cassie at all. And so it, to me, it's like you see him like imagine if Cassie was the same as how we saw her prior. And then you see Scott as a giant coming in bellowing that that would really resonate and connect with the audience because they're rooting for her at that point. Right. I do think one of the scenes that was well done that we didn't talk about was when Scott was in that uh, probability storm. And oh, so there are all right. those different versions of himself that were kind of uh, what is that word? Uh, something tosis. My, my tosis. I can't remember what it is, but it's like where basically cells divide. I can't remember the no, yeah, the word my, science. My stuff. brain fails yeah. me for the moment. It's in a textbook somewhere, Russ. Is a mitosis. I yeah, don't know. probably failed that test. Uh, but I actually did really like <laughs> that cellular division. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because once again, like you know, I was thinking, how is he going to get out of this type of situation? That then that was a very new thing that once again had a sense of, of dread. It, it was like, you know, it reinforces the notion, Hey, we're not on normal earth. Like, like we're now in this thing that I've never heard of before. Hold up, called a probability storm. He's being quickly overrun and, and panicking as a result, because there are all these different versions of exactly him that would do different things. But then they were all able to unite under one thought, which is I need to save my daughter. That was touching. I felt like that was a successful exercise in terms of like how to get the audience on board. And I, as a result, that was one of my, I love that scene. That was one of my favorite scenes in the entire film. However, there weren't enough of those throughout. And there were too many missed opportunities for me to be able to really walk away and be like, man, what a great movie. I'm with you in the sense that I did feel as though it was okay. You know, I, I didn't feel like, like I walked away disliking or hating the movie at all, but it was definitely average. It was definitely like, you know, you got your crazy CG sequences. I got to see Paul Rudd, which is great. I got to see Michelle Pfeiffer, which is great. Michael Douglas, um, Evangeline Lilly, like, you know, all those different folks, even Bill Murray, like even from what little bit we saw, it was like, you know, I enjoyed seeing those folks. And I do think there is something to be said with older actors who are being brought back into the fold because they can act like class of their own. Yeah. So you watch Michelle Pfeiffer or Michael Douglas and I'm just like, I can watch it. Like, like I remember when I was younger, I'd watch these folks in countless films. And the reason why they became so successful as movie stars is because of their performances. It's like, my goodness. And that's what makes me excited not to deviate too much of this, but like oh, sure. Michael Keaton coming back into the flash. Mm. Who doesn't want to see Michael Keaton? That's right. As a result, I'm with you though. I give this film two stars, two out of five stars. Huh. Um, I think that there could have been a whole lot more done. I feel bad for the fact that, Paul Rudd, it really wasn't his movie. It wasn't Ant-Man's movie. This was something that like they were trying to like push too many things into the spotlight. And unfortunately it, it turned into kind of a, a very high level experience instead of having deep dives. So I would recommend you waiting until it comes out on Disney plus and then checking it out there. Mm. That wraps up this episode of Joygasm. We appreciate you hanging out with us. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to check out patreon.com slash joygasm where you can enjoy exclusive perks and early access to the show. Not to mention, it helps us financially doing 
said podcast. Also, click on that subscribe button as well as that notification bell. That way you will not miss a single solitary episode of Joygasm that drops once a week each week. And you could do a search for at Joygasm TV, J-O-Y-G-A-S-M-T-V on your favorite social media platform of choice. And last but not least, do a search for Joygasm TV on Twitch to see us stream our gaming adventures live every Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Central Time. We thank you all for being here and we will see you once more next week.